Thank you for that. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be with you, the opportunity to, to preach the word. Uh, I love this passage, uh, this text, and um, I'm excited to see what God has for us here. Let's, let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word, we desire for you to speak. We desire that you would come in power with the Holy Spirit to work in hearts. Lord, I pray that you would speak through my words. I pray that you would protect me um, from any misuse of your word. Uh, But Lord, that uh, as we look together uh, at the beauty of who Jesus is, that you would break through our hearts. You would break through any hardness that might be in our hearts, that you would remind us of the beauty of who you are, and that you would work in this time. Thank you again for your word. Thank you for leaving it for us. Thank you for um, preserving it for us, protecting it for us. And thank you that um, we have this, this time of worship now that we can look at it together. Be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. So I love the book of John. The book of John might be my my favorite book in the entire Bible. And one of the things I love about the book of John is that he gives us his purpose. He tells us straight up what he wants to accomplish in writing this gospel. In chapter 20, verse 31, he says this. He says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. This is what he's hoping for. This is his express purpose. Can we we read this together? Can we read it with me? But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. So that's why John wrote the Gospel of John, that you would see, that we would see and understand the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is. But not, that, not only that we would see it, but that we would see it and glory in it, that we would see it and worship Jesus, that we'd see it and have life in his name. And that echoes something that Jesus is going to speak in this passage right here. So, in... in Following in John's footsteps, I'm going to tell you my purpose too. That's my purpose. What his purpose was is my purpose. And as we look at this text together about how Jesus is the good shepherd, his purpose is my purpose. I want you to see it. I want you to see it afresh. Maybe you saw it many years ago. Maybe you've never really seen it, but I want you to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus. And that's my one big point. If there's one big point here, that's it that you would see it and that you would worship Jesus. I want us to revel in his beauty, his glory, his sovereignty, that we might all walk out this morning with a greater understanding of who Jesus is and why he is worthy of our trust and worthy of our lives. And the proper response to such beauty, to such glory, is to ask ourselves, Do I know this Jesus? Is this my Jesus? Is the Jesus that's 
uh, that, that we see in this passage, in this text, is this the same Jesus that I know and worship? Let me tell you why this is important in my line of work. So as, as Greg was inter- interviewing me, you heard that there is a cost for those who follow Jesus where I live. So that makes me think about it this way. That cost, what does that cost? It's they might lose their job. They might lose their family. They might lose their life. So if I'm going to go there and I'm going to tell them about Jesus, I better be sure that Jesus is better than a job. That Jesus is better than family. That Jesus is better than life. Because if he's not... If he's not better than a job, if he's not better than life, if he's not better than, than a family, then I do them a disservice to go and share the gospel with them, right? So this is very important for all of us. If we're going to be a people who spread the message of the gospel to the world, we need to be sure ourselves that Jesus is worthy of that. And of course, he is. Of course, he's better than life. I believe that. And I believe passages like John 10 are the perfect place for us to see that glory. So I've got five main points, but they're all a part of the one big point that Jesus is glorious. Jesus is beautiful. I hope that each of these these points will bring worship in our hearts and action in our lives. So as we come to chapter 10... We know that there's no 10 without a 9, all right? So let's look back real fast at what happened in John 9 because I think it's connected especially to the beginning of what Jesus says in John 10. So in John 9, we have this great story about how Jesus heals a man born blind. He was born blind, but Jesus comes along and heals him. And then after that, everybody is amazed at this miracle and the Pharisees hear about it and they bring him in. They bring him in and they interview him. They question him. They say, how did this happen? Who did this? Why did he do it? They want to know everything about it. And if you remember, the man finally just says, look, I don't know everything, but here's what I know. I was blind and now I see. But that's not enough for them. They go and grab his parents and they say, what can you tell us about this situation? And his parents say, look, he's old enough. You ask him. They were were probably afraid of, of the Pharisees as well. And finally, they bring him back, and they interview him more, and they interview him more, and and finally, uh, they cast him out. There was a cost for him. They cast him out. But Jesus comes back to him, and I love this. Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answers, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you've seen him. It's he who's speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. The blind man saw And Jesus said, for judgment I came to this world that those who do not see may see, as in this blind man, and those who see may become blind. Now the Pharisees, they were there, and they heard him, and they said, wait, 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 you're calling us blind? Are we blind? And he says, you were blind. If you were blind, you had no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So here's the situation. There's a blind man who now sees and worships Jesus. And there are people who have 20-20 sight, but they're not seeing Jesus for who he is. They're not believing. And so what John is about to tell us, what Jesus is about to tell us at the beginning of chapter 10, I think transitions perfectly in from this and is actually a word picture of what we just heard. 
So let's look at verses one to five. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he's brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So here he's saying, I am the true shepherd. And this man, this blind man, he is now following me. He's following the true shepherd. But you, Pharisees, you are the thieves and robbers. And your authority is illegitimate. They have an illegitimate authority. And so Jesus is calling his sheep by name. Don't you love that? That actually happens, by the way. Sheep, uh, shepherds do call their sheep by name. I thought that was kind of strange when I first learned that. But they do actually have names for their sheep, and they call them by name, or they call them out, and the, sh- the sheep all know the voice of the shepherd. Uh, I-, I read a story about... Um, how some shepherds would keep their sheep in the same cave at night. And then in the, in the morning, one shepherd would come over here and he would make his call. And the other shepherd would come over here and he would make his call. And the sheep just knew which way to go. They knew to follow the voice of their shepherd. And we know that this is not just any voice. This is the, the same voice that said, let there be light. And there was light, right? So with this voice comes power. This is not just any voice. This is not like my voice or your voice. I could say, come, and I might could get you to come. But with Jesus' voice comes the power, the enabling to actually come as well. Just like the story you're going to get to soon with Lazarus. And Jesus says, come out. And in the power of Jesus' voice comes the ability for Lazarus to come out. And that's who we're talking about here. This is the creator God who's calling them out. And so John gives us some commentary here. I love this. Verse 6, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So do you see it? They saw, but they didn't see. They heard, but they didn't understand. They were the blind ones, and he's making a judgment on them. But he doesn't stop there. He continues. Verse 7, Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now let's talk about the door, the gate. So when I first heard this, I'll be honest, I thought Jesus was kind of mixing metaphors here. Jesus, are you the shepherd or are you the door? Which one are you? I I didn't understand it. But then I started to do some research and I found out that Uh, In Palestine, shepherds typically have two different kinds of sheep pens. So let's say they have their house and they have a sheep pen next to their house. It has a door and a gate with a lock on it, and that's where they would normally keep their sheep. But in the summer, they would take the sheep grazing up in the hills and the mountains. And when they're up there, they would have kind of makeshift sheep pens. They might have a wall or they might have some kind of fence around them, but they're kind of an area that anybody can use, any shepherd can use with his sheep. So it's not owned by one particular shepherd. It's anybody can use it. So they wouldn't put a door with a lock on it because anybody could use it. So it was kind of an opening there. And actually, this jogged my memory, and I've seen this where we live. So I have a picture of it. 
I don't know how well you can see this, but there's kind of a circle area right there that is kind of uh, fenced out. And where that man is standing right there, there's an entrance into it. That's all it is. It's a very simple sheep pen. So there's an entrance but no door. So the shepherd takes his sheep there, up there at night. And then what does he do? How does he keep them from going in and out? He lays in the entryway. The shepherd becomes the door. So to a first century Jew, Jesus is not mixing metaphors. They would understand very easily that the shepherd and the door can be one, just as in this case where the shepherd and the door are one. So what does it mean? Why is he saying this? Why is Jesus saying that he is the door? What he means is that he is the solitary way. There is no other door to salvation. There is no other way to be reconciled to God. There's no other way. Jesus alone is the way and the truth and the life. Through him, we can go in and out and find pasture, not only being saved, but, but there's this picture that's hearkening back to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? He leads me to green pasture. It's this picture of peace and joy. Right? That's what he's saying here. And if Jesus is the solitary way, then that means we must be about preaching Jesus to the nations. There are not multiple ways to God. There is only Jesus. I know plenty of Muslims who are good people, but being a good Muslim will not get them to heaven, will not reconcile them to God. There are not multiple ways. As if... If we're all in this room, and let's say, for example, that there's one fire exit, that this is the only exit for this entire room, if there's a fire in this room, you would not look around the room and say, go whichever way you feel like, Whatever, whatever's comfortable for you, go in that direction, go that way, it doesn't matter. No, we would, we would tell everybody, go this way, go this way, this is the exit, this is the way. But of course, we know Jesus is so much more than just a fire escape, Right? And here's what he says next. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I think the thief, again, is, is these people who are calling themselves leaders, but really they have their own best interest in mind. These Pharisees, they come, but really they don't, they don't have the soul of this blind man in, in, in their interest. They only have their own interest. So really what are they doing? They're stealing they're killing, they're destroying. But Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John uses the word life 39 times in the Gospel of John. 39 times. Now, six of those, he actually means death. Like here in verse 11 where Jesus says, I lay down my life, or the, the good shepherd lays down his life. So what, what he means there is death, right? So you take out those six times, there's 33 times left. Of those 33 times that the word life is used in the book of John, 19 of them include the word eternal, either explicitly or, or implicitly. So I think when he says life, that you, want, that you have life, I think he means eternal life. I think he means life that goes on and on and on. So we've got an arrow here of life that goes on and on and on, 
right? So it's good for us to think about this. It's good for us to remember that what God has called us to and called us into is something that continues on and on and on and on and on and on and on. It might have a beginning, but it has no end. We can't even fathom what Jesus has done for us and what he's brought us into. Now, eternal life, eternal life wouldn't mean anything to us if it wasn't abundant, if it wasn't good, if it wasn't joyful, if it wasn't peaceful, if it wasn't hopeful, if it wasn't a good life, who wants it eternally, right? That's punishment. If, if I told you that you get to live life eternally, but you're just going to be hanging out in the clouds, you know, maybe playing a harp or something, I, I don't, you, some of you might look at that and go, I think I'd rather do other things eternally, Right? So Jesus says, not only do we have life, but we have life abundant. The Greek there actually means superabundance, a superabundance of life. And of course, he doesn't mean a, a, a superabundance of possessions or a superabundance of health or a superabundance of, of what looks good to you in this life. No, he means a superabundance of things that are much more important, things like peace. Things like joy. One of our friends in the Middle East, uh, a, a lady who was a Muslim and she became a follower of Jesus, she told my wife Charity, she said, life now is sweeter. Everything is sweeter. Now that, now that she knows Jesus, everything is sweeter. Does that mean that there's not persecution? No. Does that mean that there's not difficulty in her life? Absolutely not. There's plenty of difficulty. But she said, and her testimony is true, that life is sweeter with Jesus. If we have Jesus, we have reconciliation with God, we have eternal life, and we have a life that is supremely better. Jesus offers us a supreme life. As a 19-year-old, I had a plan for my life. I was going to get the best grades, go to the best school so I can get the best job, so I can start my own company and be a millionaire by the time I was 30. Sounds like a good plan, right? Well, God, where was God in that plan? God was kind of on the periphery. He was, he was included in that plan, but, but only kind of on the side. You know, maybe when I made all that money, maybe I might give something to the church or something like that. God was on the periphery. But when he changed my life as a 19-year-old, he said, put all that on the altar. Surrender that. And when I did, he offered me something better. Ten years, three years in China, ten years living in the Middle East, life is better. I believe supremely better than what I had planned. Let's continue. Verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who's the hired hand and not a shepherd, he doesn't own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming, he leaves the sheep, he flees. The wolf snatches him and scatters him. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So we've seen Jesus is the solitary way. And Jesus offers a supreme life, but he's also the sacrificial shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He's good. He's good. Not only is he control everything, but he's good. He's kind. Do you believe in the kindness of God? 
And he shows that kindness, he shows that love in the most amazing way as the sacrificial shepherd, the one who lays down his life. Now let's talk about shepherds for a minute. We're coming to Christmas, and I think the shepherds always get kind of a raw deal in the Christmas plays because they're always seen as they're the dirty ones, they're social outcasts, and nobody loved them, and, and they were the worst of the worst, and that's why the angels came to them. And Some of that might be true. I think they were probably dirty, but I think that shepherds were a respectable occupation in, in first century. They, they are where we live. Shepherds are not looked down upon as, as the worst people. And you, th- you look at the Old Testament, David was a shepherd. The greatest king was a shepherd. And God himself, multiple times in the Old Testament, would say, I am the shepherd of my people. So let's, let's, you know, let's give the shepherds a little credit, I think, right? What does the shepherd do? A shepherd leads, guides, protects, provides. But this shepherd does even more than that. This shepherd gives his own life for the sheep. He lays down his life. And the truth is, is that no sheep deserves that. Sheep are replaceable. Sheep give you wool, meat, but there's a lot of them, and they're kind of dumb, right? No sheep deserves the shepherd's life. The shepherd's life is more valuable than the sheep, right? You see that? You've got a shepherd. If he dies, then lots of things go wrong and go bad, right? So the shepherd is so much more valuable than his sheep. And yet we see he's laying down his life. Like Jesus would go on and tell his disciples later, he says, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus has a purpose in this. His purpose is to show us to exhibit ultimate love. Ultimate love. The ultimate expression of love. And let me tell you, when we experience that love, when you see that love, when you feel that love, when you know that love, it does something. It changes you. And I believe gives you the ability to love as well. Verse 14, he says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. So he he just keeps going here and he just keeps saying things that are mind-blowing when we think about them. Now he says that he knows his sheep, of course. Of course he knows his sheep. He's omniscient. He's God, right? But he says something else. He says that his own know him. How? just as the Father knows him. God the Father, God the Son. How does God the Father know God the Son? Perfectly, intimately, with complete knowledge, right? That's how God the Father knows God the Son. And he's saying right here, he's saying, you Sheep can know me, the shepherd, in the same way, in the same way, with an intimate knowledge. The language that that we're learning uh, in in the Middle East, there's actually two words for know. There is to know information or to know facts. That's one word. That's, uh, That's one word. And then the other word is to know someone. 
There's different words. So don't, don't get them confused if you come over and, and you're trying to learn our language. There's one for knowing facts and one for knowing people. In English, there's only one word, but there are two meanings. So which one describes your connection to God? Do you know facts about God or do you know God? Do you have information about him like you have information about so many other things? Or do you know God personally? This verse right here is proof that his intention is that the sheep not just know about a shepherd, not just know that a shepherd exists, but that they know the shepherd intimately, personally. That's what God has designed for us. He has designed us as human beings not just to know about our God, but to know our God personally and relationally. That's a beautiful thing. Verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So here we have... Another incredible declaration of truth. Jesus declares that he has a saving purpose. That he has a purpose in in being the sacrificial shepherd. His point is that he would bring others in. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. That means they're not Jews. They're not Israelites. So he's looking at the Jews and he's saying, I have a purpose here. And my purpose is to bring people that are not here, here. He has other sheep that are not in this church, that are not in the church right now. They are among unreached people groups, and yet he has them. They are his, and yet not yet in his fold. What great confidence we can have in the task of world evangelization, right? Because he has them. Listen to the language here. I have sheep. I must bring them. They will listen. There is a divine imperative there. This will happen. He has sheep among the Hausa people group in in Africa. He has sheep among the Kurds in northern Iraq. He has sheep among the 2,500 people groups in India right now. They might not believe yet, but he has sheep there. Isn't that amazing? Praise God. We have a rock-solid promise from the God of the universe that there are people out there who will believe. So, here's where my logical mind goes. I don't know about yours, but my mind goes like this. If it's going to happen anyway, if he's already got them, if he's going to bring them in, then why should I go? Why should I risk my life? Why should I risk my family's life? Why should I go and and learn another language and another culture? Why should I go from here where I kind of like it? There's Chick-fil-A here. Why should I go from here somewhere else when it's already going to happen anyway? And the answer comes later in the book of John. John 17, 18, John 20, 21. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. John 17, 20, I do not pray for these disciples only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. You hear that? Through their word. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, go and make disciples of all nations. 
So we can go with that confidence, but we also go because he commands us to go. He wants to use jars of clay to carry this precious treasure of a message. I didn't go. I don't go because I'm awesome. I go because the message is awesome, right? You don't have to be a super Christian to be a cross-cultural missionary. You just have to see that he's called us. He wants to use us. I don't care how weak you are. I don't care how little you know. I don't care if you just came to Jesus right now. He can and will and wants to use you and me to take his message to the nations. Isn't that beautiful? So we get to be the catalyst for other people's life change for eternity. First time I went to China, shared the gospel with somebody, saw them believe, and it hit me that what just happened there is something that changed for eternity, right? If we believe this is true, then what just happened in that young Chinese man's life is that he just got that eternal life, that abundant life. God wants to use us. I was amazed at that. That God would want to use me. I was amazed at that. I'm still amazed at that. And we go with such great confidence that he has sheep there already. One more quick point here, and I think this is really important. Jesus says, there's some that are outside the fold, and I'm going to bring them in, and they're going to be one flock. They're going to have one shepherd. Therefore, within that flock, there cannot be, there should not be ever any ethnocentricity, nationalism, or racism. Because he's saying right here, I'm going to bring them in and they are mine too. And by the blood of Jesus, we are united together. I bring you greetings from the church where I am. You have a brother named Muhammad. He once was a Muslim, now he follows Jesus. You have a brother named Muhammad. I bring you greetings from him and from the other believers there. Do you believe that? Do you understand what that means? That means that you have more in common with Muhammad than you do with your unbelieving neighbor. You get to spend eternity with Muhammad. You're going to love him. He's great. And all the others too, right? There cannot be any racism, ethnocentrism, or nationalism in the flock. There cannot be. Finally, verse 17, he says this. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Again, who talks like this? I have authority to lay my life down and authority to take it up again. Now, throughout history, there have been quite a number of people who have given their lives for others, who have chosen to die that others might live. And that's a beautiful and glorious thing. We celebrate that. But who in the history of the world has ever said, I have authority to die 
and I have authority to come back to life. And then did it. Nobody. Jesus clearly has sovereign authority. Authority over life and death. Only God can speak like this. But again, this is not just some distant person 2,000 years ago in history that spoke like this. This is our elder brother. This is our shepherd. This is someone that we can know personally. Again, we see the beauty of the gospel. That the sovereign God of the universe stepped down, gave his life for us. The Son of God took the wrath of God that we might see and experience and know the love and the mercy of God. And this is the confidence that we go with as we're sent to the world. The same Jesus that says, go and make disciples of all nations. He also says, I will be with you even to the end of the age. That's meant so much to us as we've gone, knowing that Jesus is with us. So how do the people respond? Verses 19 to 21, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon, he's insane, why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? When we are faced with Jesus, the God-man, there is no neutral ground. Either we believe he is who he says he is, or maybe we just say he's crazy, he's insane. As we see the picture of Jesus, who declares himself as the solitary way to God, who offers us a supreme life, who is the sacrificial shepherd, who comes with a saving purpose, and who has sovereign authority. When we see this Jesus, again, we have to ask ourselves, is this the Jesus that I know and love? Is this my Jesus? And if this is the true Jesus, then he's worthy of all of our lives. He's worthy of every minute, every bit of it, every affection, every heartbeat, every bit of my money, every bit of my possessions. He's worthy of all of it. I once lived a life with God on the periphery. I had my plans. I had my dreams. God was merely just a part of it, but he demands more. He demands that we surrender our lives and revel in his beauty. When you see something beautiful, you can't but speak about it. You can't but enjoy it and glory in it. So here's my prayer for you. My prayer is not that you would all go overseas and become cross-cultural missionaries. Uh, I know that's, that's not reality. That's not biblical either. Not all of them went. Some of them went. The ones who felt uh, a desire for that, who felt a calling for that, who were equipped for that. I know not everybody will go. But my prayer is that each of us would consider what God has given us and feel compelled by the glory of Jesus and the beauty of the gospel to leverage whatever I've been given for his name among the nations. And I don't know what that means for you this morning, but I know that again, the beauty of Jesus and the glory of this, it demands 
we ask ourselves, is this my Jesus? And am I giving, am I leveraging what I have so that others might also have this? We were not intended to keep this for ourselves. That might mean going to a neighbor. That might mean going on a mission trip. That might mean doing something that you've never done in your entire life. But he's going to go with you. He's going to give you the the power to do that. He's going to give you the heart to do that, the love to do that. And right now he might be giving you the desire to do that that you never had before. I never had the desire to be a missionary. I thought a missionary was a single old lady. I, I did. I did. I never had the desire to go. But he put that desire in here. And it changed me. When I saw this, it changed me. It changed my desires. How is he changing your desires this morning? Is he giving you new desires? Is he calling you out of the pew to go and do something you haven't done before? This Jesus demands full surrender from our lives. Will you pray with me? Father, as we take a moment um, to each individually consider what this means for us, I pray that again you would work. Would you come in power, Holy Spirit? Would you come and convict where there needs to be conviction? Would you inspire where there needs inspiration? Would you empower where there needs empowerment? Lord, would you come and do what only you can do in the hearts of men? Lord, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the beauty and the glory of Jesus. And I pray that we wouldn't just see it this morning, but that we would see it this afternoon, that we'd see it this evening, that we would continue to see it, and that we wouldn't be blind like the Pharisees that we would see it and we would revel in it and we would share it because it is a treasure that is meant to be shared. And though we are jars of clay, Lord, we are weak, we are easily breakable. Lord, I pray right now that you would do work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.